Thumbs down. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're uh, trusting that my voice will hold out for the hour. I've had occasions in the past where I wasn't quite so sure, and I went ahead and started anyway. And usually by within five minutes of teaching, then things kind of kick in a little bit. But we'll see how that goes. If I totally lose my voice by this afternoon, then I guess Cliff or somebody will step up and teach the evening service tonight. Randy, Randy had to fill in for me a month ago when I got stuck at an airport and a number of other things. I don't want to call in sick. I never have called in sick, and that's because I'm such a legalist. But 3,100 Bible classes, and, and not once has... Uh, the Lord's been gracious. He's been faithful. That uh, not once have, has uh, sickness ever prevented teaching, other than the time I collapsed up here and they took me to the emergency room. <laughs> a little excitement on a Sunday morning. All right, Matthew 16 then. Verses 13 through 20. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And uh, this is the pinnacle for Peter in the Gospels. This is his shining moment. This is the, uh, the high point of his biography, at least so far as the Gospel record is concerned. I think, obviously, there's a greater pinnacle. By the time we get to First and Second Peter, he's got the depths of maturity of, of old age. And some tremendous doctrine in First and Second Peter, but as far as the gospel record goes, Peter is pretty much a knucklehead. He uh, he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He's constantly saying the wrong thing. He's constantly approaching uh, issues with human viewpoint perspective, and yet Christ is faithful to correct him, to rebuke him where necessary, as he does here, or as he will do here shortly uh, in the chapter, where Peter takes him aside and tells him he can't go to the cross, and. Uh, Lord says, get behind me, Satan. Anyone trying to keep Christ from going to the cross is Satan. He is an adversary and serving the adversary. So we'll deal with that. But before we get to Peter's failure, let's look at Peter's great victory here. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace provision. Father, your supply is matchless, it's perfect, it's infinite, and it is so gracious because none of us have earned it or deserved it, Father. It's all at Christ's expense and for your good pleasure. We thank you for the opportunity to assemble today. Thank you for the uh, selection by KLJO Radio. Uh, we don't know how that happened, but you're the one in charge, and we just want to thank you for that. Uh, pray that uh, that this exposure in the community might be a continued blessing and uh, that the word might get out there, Father, to those that have been hungering for teaching but didn't know where to find it, didn't know that it was available or that it even existed. And so we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity as well. Father, bless our study today. We're examining uh, Peter and the claims Christ made to him. Uh, obviously, this is a passage that the Roman Catholic Church wants to... Uh, wants to highlight and uh, defend their position being uh, uh, descendants of, of Peter. So, Father, I pray that we'll have a clear understanding of what your word truly says and that uh, it would bless us in our own ministries as we understand the responsibility that's been entrusted into, in this dispensation for binding and loosing, for operating in an earthly realm as a reflection of that which is being accomplished by the head of the church in the heavenly realm. Give us, open our eyes and give us understanding. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
All right. Uh, we have gone through <coughs> points four in their completion. And I left you with some scriptures to look up in terms of sonship. Is that correct? Did we get through A through G on point four? How far did we get on point four? Went through E. Uh, I guess I better give you F and G then. That probably would be helpful. All right. Well, then let me skip on ahead. Let's back up. The certainty of Peter. You are the Christ, son of the living God. This is point four for those of you that are following along in the outline. This is point four. I can mark my slide. It slides go. The certainty of Peter. He understood him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Expectations for their Messiah have gone back to the very first promises of the Old Testament. We gave you the vocabulary studies in the Hebrew of Mashiach and of Christos. <coughs> I'm not going to do Messiah again. That Hebrew hurts. 48.99 and the Greek term Christos. Christ does not mean Savior. Christ means anointed one. And in that respect, every single one of us are Christ's. We are anointed ones. We are anointed by the Holy Spirit and dwell by God the Holy Spirit and temples of God the Holy Spirit throughout this entire dispensation of the church. Anointing was the action for the office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus Christ, of course, is all three, prophet, priest, and king. He has not functioned as a king as of yet. He is waiting to take his seat on the throne of David until such time as the Father so determines. When he was on earth in the first advent, he was functioning as a prophet. He was not functioning as a priest. During his time on the earth, he was uh, the priesthood was limited to the tribe of Judah, I mean the tribe of Levi, specifically the descendants of Aaron. That was the active priesthood of that stewardship. The active priesthood of that stewardship is the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And as a son of Judah, Jesus and his humanity has no business as a priest. Now, he did go to the cross and begin to function as a priest. In fact, we're told he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that on the altar of his own body, sometimes we call the cross an altar. Ultimately, it was his body that he offered himself up. And he was both the sacrifice and the priest. And we're told that very clearly in the book of Hebrews, that he offered himself, that he was the one bringing the offering. He himself was the offering. That stands, of course, in sharp contrast with Roman Catholic dogma. If you ever read their theology or ever read uh, Vatican I or Vatican II, or that still to this day what is their standard of doctrine, is that Jesus Christ was the sacrifice as he hung on the cross, but Mary, the Queen of Heaven, the Mother of God, was the mediatrix. She was the one, the priest, that was offering up her son for the redemption of the world. And so... We dispute that wholeheartedly, and with any opportunity we have, Mary was not a mediatrix. She was not sinless. She herself needed a Savior, and she spoke of that, that, that uh, God, her Savior, had blessed her by means of grace. <clears throat> Moving on then into points E, F, and G, the anticipated Messiah was understood to be a king, the son of David. And uh, Psalm 72 and so many other passages that speak of that. And this really eclipsed everything else. The Jewish people got such tunnel vision locked in on the political deliverer. They got locked in on establishment life principles in that Rome was going to fall. And uh, passages in Daniel that talk about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And here they are under the yoke of Rome. 
anticipating that 69 sevens have taken place, anticipating that the Messiah is imminent. They were not looking for their sins to be removed. They were not looking to be made righteous and holy. They did not care to follow the baptizer's message of repentance. They wanted a political solution. They wanted a king who would come and free them from Rome. And so we have an attitude all throughout the Gospels. We have an attitude expressed that is very similar to our own attitude. If you think about it, Christians today were supposed to be living under a concept of imminency, that the Messiah is coming and he can come at any moment, even today. Hope he does. My resurrection body won't have a sore throat. And we're waiting with a sense of imminence. But how many believers are sidetracked and instead of abiding in the word of God, instead of setting their mind on the things above, instead of occupying with Christ, they get sidetracked into establishment life uh, principles of politics or the the uh, uh, stewardship principles of, of establishment life. The laws of divine establishment take center stage and they confuse patriotism with spirituality. And uh, it is a sad, sad situation. All right. Beyond the fact that the Messiah was supposed to be a king, the son of David, seated on the throne of David. We have another announcement made by David in Psalm 110. Then the anticipated Messiah was understood to be a king priest of the order of Melchizedek. So join me in Psalm 110 and verse 4. Psalm 110 and verse 4. And we can read it in the original in Psalm 110. Or we can go to Hebrews where it's quoted uh, about 455 times. Uh, It's not quoted that many times, but it is quoted many, many times in the book of Hebrews. Now, here is where the Lord gave a verse to to, uh, the Pharisees when they were quizzing him and he turns the tables on them and he quizzes them. He says, well, how come David says in Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That the Lord said to my Lord was proof of Christ's preexistence, proof of his superiority. This is how the son of David has uh, dominion over David. Uh, if it was just strictly a human lineage descent, then how does a descendant have sovereignty over an ancestor? How would a descendant of David have sovereignty or be David's Lord? See, but David calls him Lord. And when, when Jesus used that line of argumentation, that logic to the Pharisees, they couldn't answer. They just shut their mouth and they could not give them an answer. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Christ is still presently seated in session. And the session of Jesus Christ throughout the church age is a very important issue because uh, it demonstrates that the kingdom will not come about until the Father so determines. <clears throat> Anyway, it goes on down. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Remember, God is truth. It's possible for God to lie. So why does he take a vow? The Lord has sworn. That doesn't mean he used a curse word, right? It doesn't mean that Yahweh was up there in heaven cussing, right? When it says the Lord has sworn, that means that he has uttered a vow in the language of an oath. We're warned about oaths. We're warned about vows. We can make them, we have the freedom to make them, and we, we may make them voluntarily, but we're advised not to. We're advised that as a rule, let your yes be yes, your no, no, and avoid the vows because God is the God of truth, and any vow spoken is held to by the God of truth. 
But you have the God of truth who cannot lie, and he takes a vow. So how powerful is that? This is like infinity plus, or double infinity. Because the God who cannot lie takes a vow, and he will not change his mind. See, and there it comes to it. When you stand before your husband or your wife, and, and you take your vows, we call them wedding vows, marital vows, marriage vows, different terms for it, and you, uh, and you, you declare, till death us do part, the God of truth holds us to our vows. And the idea of changing your mind is not an option. There are modern, postmodern, 21st century American vows that say, you know, so long as we both shall love. Right? You might as well say, uh, you know, until something better comes along. Or, or until we change our mind. Right? It is till death us do part. And we take a vow and the God of truth holds us to our vows. So the Lord has sworn will not change his mind. You are a priest uh, for a little while or until I get tired of it. No, you are a priest forever. Forever. Now, this is a little bit different. This is out of their experience. Because from their founding as a nation, even prior to their founding as a nation, with the prophecies of Moses, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Right? So the scepter, the rule, the authority, the sovereignty is, belongs to Judah. And the priesthood, before they were a nation and as they were founded as a nation, the priesthood was vested in the tribe of Levi. So two of these 12 or 13 Jewish tribes are designated. One is the, is the kingly tribe. One is the, prince, uh, the uh, priestly tribe. And yet here we're told, <clears throat> Jehovah speaking, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not a Levitical priest. Obviously, any son of Judah would not qualify there. But of the order of Melchizedek is a different question. The priesthood of Melchizedek precedes Israel. Priesthood of Melchizedek precedes Abraham. And when Melchizedek the person and Abraham the person came face to face, Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek. That becomes very important as a theological principle in the book of Hebrews. So, the anticipated Messiah was understood to be a king-priest of the order of Melchizedek. We've got another scripture that talks about bringing peace between the two offices. Uh, that in throughout Israel's history, there was a tension between the two occasionally. <clears throat> and, uh, but Jesus Christ will bring a peace between the two offices, uh, he himself being a Melchizedek order priest. All right, so that is the issue there. Now, this was expected, this was anticipated... It was minimalized by many. You want to know where it was truly, uh, truly magnified? It was magnified by the Maccabees. Because the Maccabees were priests. Judas Maccabeus, <coughs> actually his father, Matthias, was a priest. He was a Levite. And they became the freedom fighters. They became the uh, soldiers who won their freedom from Antiochus Epiphanes, from the Greeks. Now, never mind, of course, that the prophecy said Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that Greece would be overthrown by Rome, and that the outworking of God's plan was running its course. The Maccabees determined that they were going to provide freedom for their nation. And in violation of the understanding of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, while they were under the yoke of Greece, they rebelled and uh, were successful. Not because they were more powerful than the Greeks, but because the Greeks themselves were fighting the Romans <laughs> and losing. All right. <clears throat> so 
Antiochus was terrified of Rome. Antiochus was busy fighting elsewhere. And because he was busy fighting elsewhere, Judas Maccabeus, the hammerer, actually uh, succeeded in winning independence for the Jewish people. Now, the Jews today refer to that as their golden age. There was nothing better in their mind than the, than the uh, time of the Maccabees or the Hasmonean era. And they won their independence. And uh, they set up their own kingdom, their own line. Is it a Davidic line? Were they interested in putting a son of David back on the throne? There was a son of David available to them. They had the, the, the lineage going back to Jeconiah, to the last king. But the prophet Jeremiah had spoken a curse upon Jeconiah. And the Levites said, oh, gee, that's too bad. You're under a curse. You can't be king. We'll be king. And they united the kingly priestly lines. And they made the, uh, the Maccabean kings their king priests. <clears throat> well, they were wrong. We understand that. God does not need help in fulfilling his promises. And God promised David that his son would sit on the throne forever. And so when Jeconiah was cursed, that was not God changing his mind about what he promised to David. It was a way of God providing a miracle or providing a fulfillment of two prophecies at the same time that appear to be contradictory, but they're both true. In the sense of Jesus Christ being born as the son of David, Literally, truly, in his humanity, but not a descendant of Jeconiah because there was no human father involved. The human father of Joseph was removed out of the picture. Jesus has the legal line through Jeconiah as the legal heir of David, but he has the physical line through Mary as the biological son of David. And both are true. They appeared contradictory, but they're both true. And the king priest will be Jesus Christ. He will not be Judas Maccabeus or it won't be any of his brothers. It won't be Simeon. It won't be... Uh, John Hyrcanus, and won't be any of the other of that line. Now, if you, by the way, just if you want to read any of this, Grace Notes has material on it. Uh, read Josephus, read Maccabees, read. It's wonderful historical reading. It's not scripture, not Bible, but it will give you a better understanding of what the New Testament's all about because there were some faithful believers who stood up to the Hasmonean dynasty and said, You guys are wrong. The scepter belongs to Judah. The, the throne belongs to David, and David's descendant forever. And they believed the Bible. They were literal interpretationists. They were patriotic, and they were God-fearing. And I'm, I'm describing for you right now the origin of the Pharisees. This is where the Pharisees became. The Pharisees would not have come into existence if the Maccabees had not perverted things and, and created their own king-priest dynasty at that time. So, anyway, if you ever want to read on the origin of the Pharisees and the uh, intertestamental, this all takes place in between Malachi and Matthew. This all takes place during the 400 years of silence after the final Hebrew prophet penned the, uh, the book of Malachi. Thirdly, <clears throat> point G, sonship. And that is divine sonship. was an accurate hermeneutical conclusion, but almost no one came to that conclusion. That it would be, not only would it be a son of David, not only would it be a king, not only would it be a king priest, when the Christ comes, it would be God himself, it would be God's son who comes to reign as the king, son of David, king priest in Jerusalem. Prophet, priest, and king. Sonship or divine sonship was an accurate hermeneutical conclusion. Now, for us, it's easy to see because we have hindsight. And we can take the New Testament, bring it into scope, which clarifies so much that maybe 
or certainly was not as clear. And yet a careful student could have, should have, and would have come to these, uh, these particular conclusions. Psalm 2. Are you familiar with Psalm 2? <clears throat> All right, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? Now, David wrote this a thousand years before Christ. And it was true of the world then. It was true of the world during the time of Christ because Peter assigns that verse to the first advent ministry of Christ in Acts chapter 2. But Peter is very... Peter quotes a lot of things in Acts chapter 2 and says this was uh, what we're looking at here, but there's still a future view because in the millennium we will find again nations in an uproar. And we will find that the, the true and complete fulfillment of this chapter is millennium, is uh, the worldwide rebellion against Christ. But nations in an uproar, peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah, against Yahweh, and against his anointed, against his Christ. Saying, let us tear their feather, fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom and they're going to hate it. And they want nothing better than to be uh, free from what they think is a tyrant. And they will even engineer and demand and flock to the banner. They will engineer the, the release, demanding the release, and they will flock to the banner of Satan once he is released from the abyss. They will gather together as the sand of the seashore in uh, the great demand for Jesus Christ to step down. Now, there's a pattern for that. David lost his throne, had to step down, and Hithophel took it for a season. Uh, so there's a pattern for that. There's shadows and typology of that. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, there's no stepping down. Because his throne is an eternal throne. So they make the demand, but it will not happen because fire from heaven will come down. Well, you will notice in verse 7. <clears throat> well, you'll note before that even. Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Uh, all the plans of men on earth are, are humorous to the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God who put his plan into effect. He says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, that's described as a completed action. And that's why, although we have shadows of this in David's time, we have shadows of this in First Advent, the true fulfillment of this cannot be until he has installed his king upon Zion, his holy mountain. And until Jesus Christ is seated on the throne in Jerusalem, this verse does not have a full and complete fulfillment. He said, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So we have sonship. And it is understood to be divine sonship. It is understood that the king on the throne is the son of God. God himself with divine sonship. You will note uh, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son. Now here we have a, this is poetry. And we have the parallel from verse 11 to verse 12. And worshiping Yahweh, understand that to be the father in heaven is paralleled with do homage to the Son, recognition of the Lord of Yahweh on earth. And so you got Yahweh in heaven, Yahweh on earth. Now we bring it into our New Testament vocabulary. We understand God the Father in His throne in heaven and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the throne in Jerusalem. And the verb to do homage is a, is a synonym to the verb to worship. And if he's a human being, he's not entitled to be worshipped. David was king, entitled to be obeyed, not entitled to be worshipped. Only God is worthy of worship. 
And when he accepted worship in the first advent, Jesus Christ was making the strongest claims of deity imaginable. <clears throat> so, divine sonship is an accurate hermeneutical conclusion. We get that from Psalm 2. We get it in Psalm 89. 1 Chronicles 17.13, Isaiah 9.6, Hosea 11.1. 1. We'll look at all these. You can, you can throw in Proverbs 8 at that point. Where the Lord begat me, if you use the translation begat in uh, Proverbs 8. But Psalm 89. I will also set his hand on the seas, his right hand on the rivers. He will uh, cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So the king is identifying with God as his father. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we have divine sonship in view, not only in Psalm 2, but also in Psalm 89. First Chronicles 17:13. We don't get to Chronicles very often. I gave you a Chronicles verse on Sunday. How about that? Two Chronicles passages within a week. <clears throat> First Chronicles 17:13. Here's the Davidic covenant. Now, is God a liar? Is he lying to David? Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. First Chronicles 17.10 When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his house. I will establish his throne forever. Now, I want you to notice that Jehovah is building a house for David. We call this the house of David or the throne of David. This is the royal dynasty of David. Uh, we're, we're, we're a little bit alien to this because we don't have royal houses in the United States. But if you're familiar with English history or other European history or other royal houses, uh, if you have a clue what I'm talking about when I talk about the house of York and the house of Lancaster in the uh, War of the Roses, Red Roses, White Roses, and all of that. Well, Yahweh is going to build the house of David. But look what the son of David is going to do. He shall build for me a house oriented back to the Father. The Son always leads back to the Father. He shall build for me a house and I will establish His throne. What's that little word right there? Forever. I will be His Father and He will, shall be my Son. And I will not take away my loving kindness from Him as I took it from Him who was before you. That being, of course, Saul who lost his kingdom for David to take it. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. All right, so here's uh, the promise to David, and it is forever. But the aspect is sonship. He shall be my son. I will be his father. He shall be my son. The son of David is not only the son of David. He's also the son of God. And that is a valid conclusion you can draw from these passages. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born, a son will be given. You don't even have to turn there. You have Isaiah 9 memorized, don't you? Is this redundancy? It's poetic parallelism, to be sure, but it is also a truth. It is the truth. A child will be born to us. Humanity of Jesus Christ, born in the, of a virgin in the manger. A son will be given to us. Pre-existent, eternal, glorious God the Son. A child is born, a son is given. Both are true. The government will rest on his shoulders. He's not yet taken that responsibility. It's not the purpose for his first advent. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. There's the fatherhood of the Son, and we'll deal with that. Prince of Peace.
So we have the sonship. Finally, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I will call my son. <clears throat> sonship is an accurate hermeneutical conclusion. So this is what they should have been expecting. And I think that spirit-filled believers were expecting this. Simeon and Anna in the temple were expecting this. Nathaniel, uh, sitting under his fig tree, was expecting this. Peter and Andrew were expecting this. When Andrew saw Jesus and he started following after him, he went and he fetched his brother and said, we found the one we were waiting for. We found the Christ. If they were uh, positive to the Word of God, they would have recognized this. And so Peter says, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus celebrates the celebration of Jesus. <clears throat> you know, shepherds are not promised any blessings in time. None. Zero. Try to pound that into the men that we train. If you want to become a pastor because you want some kind of blessings in time, forget it. You know, if you've got some kind of dream or idealism about what pastors are all about, that, uh, you know, it's an easy life. You work one day a week, you know, or two. and <clears throat> You know, uh, live in a nice home, drive a nice car, and everyone says nice things to you. Well, to your face anyway, and then something else behind your back. The um, Now, sometimes to your face. You get the harsh comments, too. <clears throat> We're promised no rewards in time. First Peter 5 says... Um, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, yet with eagerness, proving to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are no rewards promised prior to when the chief shepherd appears. And since the chief shepherd's not here yet, every shepherd on the planet better just keep working, keep studying, keep teaching, feed the flock, and, uh, and not lose heart. We were promised no reward prior to the rapture of the church. And yet occasionally we reap a reward, a reward of this nature, a personal celebration, a rejoicing, a statement of happiness. Blessed are you. I prefer happy are you. I prefer the translation of makarios with the term happy. I'm kind of stuck with blessed because of the Beatitudes, but happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the meek. We've had 300 years of King James, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and I don't think we can escape that. But Jesus said to him, happy are you, blessed are you, and happy was Jesus. He was able to celebrate this. Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had a clue. The crowds were clueless. They had three leading suspects, and they were 0 for 3. They were wrong on all three suspicions. Because um, he's not John the Baptist, he's not Jeremiah, he's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets of old that come back to life. He's the Christ. And Peter got it right. You are the Christ and the living God. And for a Bible teacher to observe a student who actually puts things together and actually has a comprehension, has an application, and actually that, that's one of the, the, the great joys of, of ministering the Word. Because you see it take effect. You see it sink in. You see it applied. And so Jesus is able to pronounce the happiness on Peter's behalf, Simon Barjona, commonly known as Peter, but also for his own enjoyment that Jesus is sharing in that happiness. Now, 
He says, blessed are you, and we're going to get kind of sidetracked on the language here, but happy are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. What's Bar-Jonah? Son of John. Okay, yeah. Um, it's not what's printed on his driver's license. Okay. His driver's license would have said, Simon, would have said Simeon in Hebrew. <clears throat> we've, we've actually spent some time here and in the First Corinthians series talking about Cephas. Because he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And so we've got all these names. And let me just spell them out for you here. Okay, so I want to make sure we're clear on it. The bar is, is Aramaic, and that's why I'm taking the time to do this. Put that on main. <clears throat> These were Sunday night's hymns. We don't need that anymore. All right. So, what's on his uh, birth certificate? Simon. This is Simon. All right. And uh, comes from the Hebrew, comes from Simeon. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. He had Reuben, then uh, Simeon, and then Levi. So he was the second born son of Jacob. And then Judah was the fourth. <clears throat> but then he's given the name of Kephas. Kephas. Or typically in English pronounced Cephas. This is his Aramaic name. But it's a nickname that's assigned to him. It's a nickname that's assigned to him that means stone or rock. And uh, in the First Corinthians series on the slideshow, I have the Aramaic printed here for Kepha and uh, for Shimon and some of the other in the Hebrew. And I'm going to forget. I think it's like this. But it ends with an... Aramaic is kind of bizarre. Something like that. It's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Kepha, or Cephas in the English. It gets translated as Petros because of the Greek, Peter. Petros is Peter. We commonly call him Peter, right? The names of the twelve apostles are these, and Peter's first on the list. Or sometimes he's called Simon Peter, with a hyphenated name. It's the same name. We have the books of First and Second Peter. We don't have the books of First and Second Simon, right? Or First and Second Cephas, but we could, because that's who wrote them. All right. But he's called Simon, son of John. Now, son in Hebrew is Ben, like Ben Gurion, Ben Hur, Ben, right? Ben and Jerry's Ben. Ben is Hebrew for son, okay? Bar is not Hebrew. Bar is Aramaic, okay? So he is Bar-Jonah. And the indication here where he says, <clears throat> and I say to you that you are Cephas, anyway, the, the clues in the text are that, that Christ is actually speaking verbally in Aramaic when he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. When the conversation took place, it, it transpired in the Aramaic language. But when it was recorded by God the Holy Spirit, it was recorded in the Greek language. And this is what's often overlooked by folks. Because when he says, I say to you, you are Peter. If he was speaking Aramaic, he would not have said Peter. He would have said, I say to you, you are Kepha. 
he would have used the Aramaic. I say to you that you are Kepha. And on this Kepha, I will build my church. Now, we, we make a lot of comment about the written text because he says, I say to you, you are Petros, but on this Petra, I will build my church. Okay? And that's the difference. You've got a masculine Petros and a feminine Petra. This is what's recorded for us in the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. Petros and Petra. But you may encounter people to say, no, he was speaking in Aramaic. He was speaking to Barjona in Aramaic. And speaking in Aramaic, he would have said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. And Kepha would have been the same. We would not have had a change of gender between Petros and Petra. By saying, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church, the identical term was used without a change of gender. All right, that's what they bank on. They bank on he was speaking in Aramaic. You are Kephi, and on this Kephi I will build my church. And they say Peter is the Kephi. Peter is the rock on which the church is built. And so the Romans uh, go with that. However, even if the conversation originally was verbally communicated in Aramaic. Peter himself would not have understood himself to be the rock. That his name has a corollary with his confession and that the confession is the foundation. When the Holy Spirit inspired it in Scripture, Matthew, uh, the New Testament was not written in Aramaic. And the text does not say on this Kepha I will build my church. It says on this Petra I will build my church. And the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture tells us that the, the change from Petros to Petra is significant. He says, you are Petros, you are Peter, masculine gender. And upon this Petra, feminine gender, rock, I will build my church. So we have a distinction to be made there. Peter is not the rock. His confession is the rock. So far as that goes. All right, any question on that? Did I clear things up or did I make things confusing? All right. <clears throat> and then let's go back to... Slideshow. All right. I'm going to read a selection here from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <clears throat> In the Confession of Peter. And specifically the rock in this church section right here. This is Arnold Fruchtenbaum in the Messianic Bible Study Collection. The key to this statement is the relationship between the name Peter and the word rock. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, has done much concerning this particular passage. It is taught that Peter was the first pope and that he was the rock upon which Jesus was to build his church. Based upon this teaching that since Peter was the rock upon which the church was built, beginning with Peter then, there has been a continuous line of popes through apostolic succession. <clears throat> Of course, any student of church history realizes that's completely bogus. They've had all kinds of popes, anti-popes, competing popes. There were three popes at once one time. And they had popes in France and popes in Rome and popes in uh, Ravenna and, uh, and other places. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. And only the Roman Catholic Church can properly interpret the scriptures. In fact, Pope Benedict just a couple months ago reaffirmed that very statement. It said that Protestant denominations are 
uh, confused and they are not true churches because they are not descendants of Peter in his succession. <clears throat> they also say that the Bible doesn't interpret itself. The Bible is to be interpreted by the church. And so we're not qualified to properly interpret the scripture. My ordination on November 4th, 1994 has no value because it did not come. It did not impart to me that spiritual legacy from Peter down to Linus, down through the, the current pope at the time. All right. <clears throat> so when they say this, they are saying that Matthew, who wrote the gospel, did not understand the rudiments, simplicities and foundations of Greek grammar. The simple point of Greek grammar is, is this. You cannot modify a masculine by a feminine. If you've got a masculine noun, you've got to modify it with a masculine. If you've got a feminine noun, you've got to modify it with a feminine. Same thing in Spanish, French, German, I don't care, whatever language you study. If it's uh, Casablanca, it's not Casablanco, it's White House, you've got to match your genders every time. <clears throat> the word for Peter, Petros, is masculine noun and it means a small stone or pebble. Yeshua said, you are Peter, Petros. Oh, when Arnold writes, he writes, rather than Jesus, he refers to, by the Aramaic, Yeshua. But that's Jesus. Yeshua said, you are Peter, Petros. You are a small stone, a small pebble, just like the small stones, the pebbles from this stream. Uh, but he also takes you geographically to this region here on the eastern shore and shows you the... Um, I should have backed up there because the setting is important. Let me go back to that. The, the place of the confession... Caesarea Philippi was just outside the borders of the land of Israel in Gentile territory. It was a town that was built on the foot of Mount Hermon, particularly at the foot of a huge, massive cliff rock. Right? This becomes important because it, it sets the, the tone for the message that, that uh, Yeshua gives to, to uh, Kepha. Um, the Greek word for huge cliff rock was Petra. This Petra, or huge, massive cliff rock, overshadowed the town of Caesarea Philippi. From the base of this huge, massive cliff rock, a river gushed out. This river, which is now called the Banyas, is one of the four sources of the Jordan River. In the bed of the Banyas River are many small stones or pebbles which are broken off from the massive cliff rock as the river shoots out from the base. Does that make sense? You follow the imagery on that there then? All right. So the Greek word for small stone or pebble is Petros. So Petra means a huge massive cliff rock like the one that overshadows Caesarea Philippi. Petros means a small stone or pebble like the ones in the bed of the stream that shoots out of the base of the cliff rock. All right. So the pebble comes from the cliff rock. The pebble is not the cliff rock upon which the church is built. So then we um, come back here where he talks about the rock and the church. Yeshua said, you are Peter, Petros, you are a small stone, a small pebble, like the small stones or pebbles in the stream shooting forth from the base of the cliff rock, which overshadowed the town of Caesarea Philippi. On the other hand, when he talked about this rock, the Greek term he used was Petra. Petra is a feminine noun, which means a massive cliff rock, such, as, uh, such like the one that overshadowed Caesarea Philippi. So Peter is a small stone, which makes terrible foundations. You do not build a building on a foundation of small stones. But a house could be built on a solid, massive, huge cliff rock because that would be a firm foundation. So Yeshua said to Peter, you are Peter, Petros, small stone, and upon this rock, Petra, massive cliff rock, I will build my church. In other words, Peter, you are Petros, a very small stone like the ones in the river that are broken off this cliff. But upon the Petra from which you were broken off, I will build my church. 
It is Jesus who is the massive cliff rock upon which the church would be built. It would not be built upon Peter, but Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the living one. That's the confession. That's the cliff rock. That's the massive Petra upon which the church is built, on the confession Peter made. Peter was not the rock, but the small stone, which was part of the rock. The rock itself was Peter's confession. Therefore, the church is going to be built on the basis of the messiahship of Yeshua. All right, I found that to be quite beneficial. We're hoping, by the way, to book... We've got a tentative booking for Arnold Fruchtenbaum next January or February. And I want to get the or out of the equation. I want to get the dates locked in and have him either January or February. I don't much care as long as we get him at a uh, particular time. All right, Cliff, we've got a visitor back there. Can you see? All right, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Petros and Petra, masculine and feminine. Uh huh. Well, because you just go with what your church tells you, and you you get told it a billion times from birth to everywhere else in your life, and you don't even question it anymore. It'd be like questioning that uh, you know we breathe air. The church tells you your whole life that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. And they, they let you look at it with your own eyes and say, see, right there. But they don't go into the detailed study. They don't go into the Greek. They don't go into the, into the isagogics of the text. It would be interesting to see. I looked this up before. And now I'm forgetting what uh, the, uh, the Vulgate does with this. In terms of Matthew 16, 19, 16, 18. Let me pull up the Vulgate. Hmm. And even the Latin has it differently. With Petrus and Petram. So even in the Latin, in the Catholic Vulgate, they even have a distinction between the two terms. Petrus capitalized and Petram uncapitalized. Ah, and Adificabo. I love the Latin words that have the combined ash, the A-E letter in front. Aren't those great? I learned how to do those on my computer. I can do the A-E combination deal. All right, so yeah, that's uh, Catholic theology is that Peter, Peter is the rock. Well, the Lord celebrates, and he celebrates by declaring the happiness of that statement. Subpoint A, happy are you. I prefer the phrase happy to blessed with makarios as the adjective. Makarios A. Makarios A. Lord's not becoming Canadian or anything. See, I grew up in the other border states, and uh, we weren't exposed to uh, the things that this border state is exposed to, we had Canadians crossing over. Which wasn't really such a problem because typically the Canadians would cross over, spend a bunch of money and go back. You got a little obnoxious in baseball games if we were playing the Toronto Blue Jays or some kind of Canadian team and then the Canadians would come across and get drunk and obnoxious. 
Makarios, eh? Happy are you. And you relate that over. I don't have time this morning, but go back to the uh, Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 11, and all of those statements are makarios, or in the plural, makarioi. Happy. And it switches from them, 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 them to you right at the very end when uh, people persecute you and insult you and all the rest. Secondly, Peter understood truth because God the Father had provided the instruction. Peter understood truth because God the Father had provided the instruction. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, the teaching of Jesus was the teaching of the Father who is in heaven. But without the universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit that believers today enjoy, during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, as the Father came to exegete the as Jesus came to exegete the Father, as the Son came to reveal the Father, he said, I don't teach anything on my own initiative, but as I hear I teach. And Jesus was teaching everything from the Father. The Father was the one who empowered the understanding amongst these disciples. Peter understood truth because God the Father had provided the instruction. These disciples had paterological teaching, unique to that age, not accomplished today. Today we have, who's the member of Trinity that guides us in the truth? God the Holy Spirit. There you go. And yet, this is a taste of what will happen in the millennium. Isaiah 54, 13. We'll get the context for this in Isaiah 54. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Now, normally, uh, a woman without a child was not going to shout for joy. She was going to weep like Hannah, like others that could not have children. They were going to weep because they're, they were not providing for the next generation. They were not providing for the tribe to continue. They were not providing for the family to continue to glorify the Lord. And then ultimately, uh, they were anticipating, of course, that when Christ came, it would be through the birth of a woman. It would be through childbirth. And so every time there was travail and childbirth, but then it would be over and the baby is here, there would be joy for a man-child has come into the world. And the reminder that the Savior is coming. The Savior is coming. But here we have kind of a contradiction. Shout for joy, O barren one. Uh, then it goes on to say, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. That's the labor of childbirth. Why? For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Because God is going to provide and the prosperity and the abundance and the blessings of the millennium are going to turn sorrow to joy. Um, so... Anyway, there is uh, the promise of these things. Verse 4 says, Fear not, you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker. The one uh, whose name is the Lord of hosts, your Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. There's another statement of deity. The Messiah, when he comes, will be deity, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. 
And he's using here this language of anguish, this language of failure. Here's this woman who never conceived, who never bore a son for her husband, and her husband cast her away, rejected her, turned her away in her shame. And uh, the Lord says, no, you're mine. Like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. And then verse 7 is very interesting. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Israel is still the covenant nation. They might be in captivity. They might be under God's discipline. When they went to Babylon, they were under God's discipline, but they were still his people. After Rome destroyed the temple and they're scattered around the world to this day, to this day, now there is a Jewish nation in existence, but to this day, there are more Jews outside of it than inside of it. For a brief moment, I forsook you. God's plan for Israel is not over. He will restore them. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, this is second advent. This hasn't happened yet. Now, you will note, like the days of Noah, there's wrath on the way. Armageddon and all the rest. And he's going to come back and they're going to be preserved. Just like Noah's family was preserved. Israel will be preserved. 144,000 are going to be sealed. He says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. This is, hasn't happened yet. This is the prosperity of second advent. Notice, all your sons will be taught of Jehovah. And the well-being of your sons will be great. Israel will enjoy direct pedagogical teaching in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of this verse, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. And the well-being of your sons will be great. This is why Gentiles are going to, ten Gentiles will take the cloak of one Jew and, and say, teach us as they'll have a spirit-indwell prophetic ministry taught directly by the Father and disclosing the things of the Father. An entire nation of Israel doing what Jesus Christ did in the first advent, revealing the Father. An entire nation of Israel. So, when the light bulb comes on and Peter learns from the Father the certainty of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, Jesus celebrates and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And at this very moment where the political leaders are rejecting Him and plotting His murder, the disciples are catching on. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is very at hand. And yet, of course, they crucify their Christ. All right. Then we get to the church. Then we get to the church. On this rock, I will build... A mystical body in which there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Not what it says. And Peter wouldn't have understood it anyway. Because the church is mystery doctrine. The church is unrevealed. Nowhere in the Old Testament was it revealed that God would call out or create a new thing. A new body, a new man. A man which is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body in Christ. The mystical body of Christ. Nowhere is that revealed in the Old Testament. Peter would have been clueless 
if the Lord would have said such a thing. He said, I will build my ecclesia, I will build my church. Now here too is where we're going to do the work. If he was if he was speaking in Aramaic, as we suspect, what term was he using for church? What term was he using for assembly or for congregation? There are a number of Hebrew terms that are leading candidates. There are a number of Aramaic terms that are leading candidates. <clears throat> but rather than get all wrapped up and lost over what Aramaic word he might have spoken, what, did the, what word did the Holy Spirit select when he inspired the composition of Matthew 16, 19? Or Matthew 16, 18. On this Petra, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. Now, they were expecting a king on the throne of David. They were expecting a priest king. They were expecting it was God himself or God the Son. But what were their expectations in terms of an assembly? Were they expecting an assembly? Were they expecting a new assembly? Or did they assume that the previous assembly would be ushered into the, uh, the center stage when the king entered center stage. Because we have references to assemblies or congregations in the Old Testament. Do you know what those are offhand? The assembly of the angels in heaven. That's called an assembly. That's right. What about some earthly assemblies or congregations? It's all throughout the Old Testament, folks. The congregation of the sons of Israel. The assembly of Israel. And uh, in many cases, the Septuagint renders that with ecclesia, in some cases with synagogue. synagogue. And we will, uh, we're already at the top of the hour, so we will come back to this. But I want you to, hi- I want you to recognize something. Ecclesia only occurs twice in the Gospels. It occurs in two places prior to Pentecost, prior to the church coming into existence. Matthew 16, with uh, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And then Matthew 18, in a passage we look at in terms of corporate discipline, where if he doesn't listen to one, and he doesn't listen to two or three, then you take him before the ecclesia. You take him before the church. And, he is, and then if he doesn't listen to the ecclesia, then he is treated as a Gentile and tax gatherer, and you, you d- dismiss him from your presence. Also often, and, and I'm going to give you a whole week to chew on this. We'll come back next Wednesday. <clears throat> Matthew 18 is our pattern for church discipline. But it's a text that's not found within the church age. It is a Bible class Jesus taught that precedes Pentecost. So what ecclesia is in view in Matthew 18 for the administration of corporate discipline? And what ecclesia is in view in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, On this Petra I will build my ecclesia. Alright, you got one week to think about it and you'll get your answers next Wednesday. If you can wait that long. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for uh, sustaining my voice to the duration of this class. Father, you are the faithful one. We praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.